everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you and with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Yellow. We have a guest with us, as we are wont to do. Uh, I guess which will be familiar to a lot of you who listen to medical podcasts as he is host of the very popular ACRAC Anesthesia and Critical Care Review and Commentary podcast, Dr. Jed Walpaw. Dr. Walpaw is a professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine. He is the residency program director there as well as an attending in the uh, both the operating room and the surgical ICU. We're going to talk today about airway management and predicting the difficult airway for those of us who are not anesthesiologists. Uh, Brandon's going to take us through a case, and we'll get some tips. Yeah. Um, well, it's nice to see you, Jed. Um, what I just hope we could explore today is the general idea to looking at a patient and deciding what you're kind of getting yourself into if your plan is to manage their airway. And this is especially relevant to uh, people who do critical care who are, let's say, not anesthesiologists, because um, it's hard to argue that folks doing anesthesia are seeing more airways than anyone else. It really is a routine, high-volume thing for them. For most of the rest of us, it's not. And Probably, you know, in second down the rung there might be the folks in the ER. Even for them, it's, uh, I mean, they're only doing so many, and I think it, even less so in the ICU. And then for folks like Brian and I, um, who are APPs, it, it may be even less, depending on your setting. Um, and so it gets into this tricky area where this is one of the higher-risk procedures that are performed in the ICU. Um and you have to ask, first of all, who should even be doing it, which is a whole other matter. And certain centers have said we should just have the anesthesiologist doing it, which is the culture in a lot of places. I know I, I trained at your institution, at Johns Hopkins. That was kind of the culture there, which can make it um, uh, hard to get trained, for one thing. But, <laughs> but it raises the question of, you know, is it appropriate for somebody to be doing this at all? Who is, this is not their bread and butter. But, you know, Brian and I have talked in the past about just in general, it, it's not always the most trained, perfect person who needs to do every procedure. It just needs to be someone who is adequately trained. And so many places that is a case that you could have a, one of the ICU team who is primarily managing their own airways with perhaps backup from a service like anesthesia. However, that whole model implies that the least the less than absolute expert person managing an airway also needs to know how to uh, decide when they should not be managing the airway. Um, and that's especially true because a lot of airways are kind of a one-way slope. Once you get into it, maybe you induce a patient or paralyze them, it can be hard to, to dial that back. So you, you kind of want to know ahead of time. Um, so I think this is such an important skill, particularly for those of us who are kind of occasional intubators, which inherently means that no matter how well trained you are, you are—it's always um, 
kind of a delicate balance. And it's just so important to not get yourself into something uh, that could be risky. Um, I want to get into details, but I just want to give you a chance to comment on that if you wanted to. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the show, Brian. And Brandon, it's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I think it's a super important topic. I completely agree that it is not a good strategy to only rely on anesthesiologists to do airways for the reason that you said, Brandon, which is that it's not going to be possible. I mean, even if you have an anesthesiologist in-house at all times, which many hospitals do not, but even if you do, you could easily have two patients who need airways at the same time, and you're not going to be able to have that one person in both places. So it is really important that people have the ability and the comfort level to manage airways if needed. Now, I do think that what you said about anesthesiologists being sort of far and away the experts here is, is important to acknowledge. And that's not to say that our ER colleagues or anyone else may not also be quite adept at doing this, but there is something about the repetition. And, and, and anesthesiologists will have done thousands and thousands of intubations. There's just not another scenario I know of where anyone's going to have that. And it does make for a different comfort level and ability to respond to different things that may go wrong. So I would say that if you have the ability to have an anesthesiologist present, it's a good idea. That doesn't mean they have to be the one managing the airway primarily. We all the time will have a resident, a fellow, uh, a, um, a PA resident, a PA, somebody who's learning, do the airway primarily with us there just in case. And I think that's a very safe way to do it. I think you also need to be able to recognize when perhaps this particular patient and this particular airway is not one that would be uh, ideal for a, a, at least an inexperienced trainee to practice on. So there are some times where I think you do need to say, and I'll just there are many, many examples, I'll give you one. The patient with platelets of two with a relatively difficult looking airway where you, at one misstep, and this is going to be a complete disaster full of blood that nobody can see anything. And so you really want the most experienced person in the room doing that airway. Um, but there are lots of examples of other times where, where it would be fine and important for someone to get that training. So it is, uh, you do want to have the skills to evaluate the airway, and then it is important for multiple people to start getting comfortable with the procedure. Yeah, there's so many areas we could dive into here. You know, the possibility that you train somewhere and then go somewhere else where you don't have that kind of backup. Um, the general reality that for trainees and even trained people of any level, uh, the importance for them to recognize when they need help, regardless of what they're doing. Uh, th these things apply in a lot of situations. But let's get into the airway uh, issue. So I want to explore at least a couple settings for when you're going to find yourself looking at a patient's airway and, and deciding kind of what you're getting into. And I figured we could start in a less acute situation because um, this is something we don't really do in, in the ICU, but uh, it may kind of inform the ideal situation. So when you are, uh, I mean, you are not just an intensivist, but an anesthesiologist. And when you are wearing an anesthesiologist hat um, and you are preparing to take a patient to the OR for some procedure, you guys will generally evaluate them beforehand. And one of the things you're looking at is their airway and making a plan for it. Many places do a, a pre-op sort of clinic. Um, uh, how far in advance that is? Is it virtual or in person or whatever? It probably depends. But um, let's say you're seeing a patient who's coming in for some procedure for which they're going to get general anesthesia. Nothing involving their head or neck, so there's no kind of specific anatomic consideration there. But um, you're looking at this patient, talk to them, and deciding among other things, and we're not going to get into some of the other things you guys evaluate for um, stability and uh, optimization for surgery, uh, but for, as far as their airway, I'll just say, let's say it's a 55-year-old male. He has diabetes, hypertension, some medical history, but nothing you know directly relevant. 
I don't want to give you any more structure. What are some of the things that you are considering when you try to decide this patient's risk for when you're going to adjust their airway and, you know, what might inform your plan for it? Yeah, great. So I would say we want to look at two main, main things. One, to the extent possible, and let me say right up front, we can't, nobody's perfect. No score is perfect at knowing for sure. You can have an airway that looks like it's going to be the easiest possible airway and can end up being quite challenging. And the opposite can be true. So you do the best you can, but you always should be prepared, no matter what you think, for the airway to be difficult. Better to be prepared and then have it be easy. But there's two things we want to look at. One is, how likely do we think that mask ventilation will be difficult? And the second is, how likely do we think that intubation will be difficult? And those, interestingly, are not the same thing. So I'll give you an example. If a patient has no teeth, they are edentulous, that makes them more likely to be a difficult mask ventilation, but more likely to be an easy intubation. So those are exactly opposite predictors when it comes to those two things. But we really want to know, as hopefully everyone listening knows, as long as you can successfully mask ventilate, you are not in an emergency situation. Now, you may get there. Just because you can mask ventilate at a given point doesn't mean you'll always be able to. But at least at the moment, if you can mask ventilate a patient, even if you cannot intubate them, you're okay. So it's important to know that. And that's where we start. So we're going to look for evaluating whether someone would be uh, hopefully uh, maskable. So things that predict difficult mask ventilation are a heavy beard. And that's just simply for being able to get a seal on the uh, mask. And we can talk about ways around that. But certainly that's a predictor. As I uh, said, being edentulous uh, is a predictor of difficult mask ventilation. Having large neck circumference is a predictor of difficult mask ventilation. So those are the big things that we look at um, in terms of thinking about uh, large tongue is another one um, that we look at for being potentially difficult mask ventilation. In that scenario, what we would want to do if we are concerned is we need to then think, all right, if we think they're going to be easy to intubate, then maybe that's, you know, even if we can't mask, maybe we can go ahead and get an airway in or at least an LMA. But we do want to be aware. And so we're going to have things like oral airways, nasal trumpets, uh, LMAs for sure. We should always have, but we're going to be ready thinking we may need these things. Certainly thinking about two hand mask ventilation, really making sure we're optimizing our positioning. Uh, our, uh, if there's someone does have a, a thick beard, do we have clippers around? Are we ready to shave that beard in an emergency? You can have a big tegaderm that you can place over the entire face with a hole for the mouth that allow, can allow you to get a seal even in the setting of a big bushy beard. Um, so those are all things to be ready for. And then when we think about the intubation, um, we're looking at things like, uh, and this is the process that usually we'll go through. We'll ask the patient to open their mouth wide, stick out their tongue, and we'll evaluate their malampati score. It's probably the most well-known way to evaluate um, this. It's not, I would say, that predictable. It's a, a one piece of information. But what we're looking for is, can we see the entire uvula, kind of the most wide open possible? You know, you see kind of everything back there, including the uvula. That's a malampati one. That's a predictor of being an easier intubation. A malampati two is you can see the soft palate, the base of the uvula, but not the entire thing. A malampati three is you can just see kind of some soft palate, but nothing else. And a malampati four is you can only see hard palate, so essentially nothing. And the higher the malampati score, the more potentially difficult the intubation is. So we'll look at that. We'll then have them show us their teeth. And that actually is both so if they don't have any teeth, we know that's a predictor of being an easier intubation. But also we want to know are any of those teeth broken or loose so that we might you know, know for a danger of knocking one back into the mouth or knocking one off. And then we'll ask them to tilt their head back as far as they can. And we're looking at two things there. One is how good is their neck extension? So 
if someone has a fused C-spine and they can't extend their neck at all, that's going to make for a quite potentially difficult intubation. And if they have really good neck extension, that's helpful. We also, at the same time, can look at the distance, their thyromental distance, so the distance between their thyroid cartilage and their chin, on, underside of their chin. We ideally want that to be at least three finger breaths. So if that is three or more finger breaths, that's reassuring. If it's less, then that's potentially a predictor of a more difficult intubation. Then we're going to ask them to put their neck all the way forward and make sure they have that good neck extension forward as well. And then the final piece is to ask them to take their bottom teeth and extend them forward and up. So I tell patients, try to use your bottom teeth to bite up toward your nose, like you're trying to get your bottom teeth to touch your nose. And what we're looking for is if they have good jaw mobility from that lower jaw, if they can get that those bottom teeth up above the vermilion border of their lip, that's good. That's a f class one. That's what we want to see ideally. If they can get it to the vermilion border but not above, that's a class two. And if they can't even reach, it's hard to believe, but some people cannot even get their bottom teeth up to their lip, upper lip, that is the worst. That's a class three. And interestingly, as my read of the data is actually that that test. If you could only pick one, that test is the most predictive. So we really want to have that jaw mobility in terms of freeing up that space to be able to see where we're going. So those are the things we're going to do preoperatively to get a feel for what might happen, as well as, of course, and you already gave me in this scenario that they haven't, they're not coming in for any mouth or oral airway or, or neck surgery, though if they have a history of those things, so a history of radiation to the mouth or certainly surgery of the airway or something like that, then they may have altered anatomy, and that could be a significant change. The most extreme being that if someone's anatomy, even if they have, you can't tell if it's down in the you know lower pharynx that we can see on a CT scan, for example, that the anatomy has been altered or is scarred down a lot, that might be a patient who we're not going to even try. We're going to do an awake intubation in that patient. So those are the things that we're going to look at before we make a plan. Okay. So factors for difficult masking are really mainly things that affect your ability to get a seal on the face, facial hair, maybe having no teeth is actually makes it more difficult. Um, and then for innovation, it's largely about your ability to kind of manipulate the head, inflection and extension, uh, protrude that jaw interiorly, and then how much you can get the mouth open and see. And the malampati, just to be clear, is mouth open, tongue out, but they're not saying ah, right? Correct. They have to be sitting up, facing you, mouth open, not saying ah. So saying ah will falsely improve the malampati score. So that is correct. And I see this done incorrectly a lot but you are correct. And I'll just change one little thing that you said, which is that in terms of predictors of mac ventilation, yes, ability to get a seal, but also uh, kind of excess soft tissue in the mouth. So that's the large tongue, the large neck circumference. Those are things that are going to make, even if you can get a great seal, may obstruct airflow down into the, uh, into the uh, oropharynx. Now you're not measuring neck circumferences, are you? Well, they do get measured by the nurses for for the stop bang score as a predictor of potential for OSA. Um, but that's not, uh, I don't know of a lot of us who are reviewing that exact measurement. It's more of a, a gestalt. You look at it, and does it look like they have a large neck? Okay. And likewise, you talk about three fingers of a thyromental distance. Are you sticking fingers under there, or this is kind of an eyeball? So I think every new resident, um, potentially every new intubator, obviously I work with residents the most, uh, does, right? So they are saying to a patient, okay, do you mind if I you know, put my fingers on your neck for a second? And they're measuring it. I think you get to a point where you don't need to do that anymore. So I do not. I can tell by looking if we're talking about a normal or a short thyromental distance. Okay. And th this is, I think, not intuitive to a lot of people. But the the idea here is that the shorter that distance, your sort of chin sticks out anteriorly, the more 
anterior the airway is going to look, which y- you have correct. to sort of look at the axes for this to make sense. Because in a way, I feel like it would make more sense that if you had more distance, it would be a better view. But that's not that's not right. Or less uh, distance would well, be yes, a better more, view. More <laughs> distance. Right. So so more distance between the chin and the thyroid is going to be a better view. And, the, you know, one way to remember this is dogs, as it turns out, are incredibly easy to intubate. Now, I don't say that from experience. I've never intubated a dog. But people who have say that it's very easy because if you think about it, a dog has, you know, a foot of thyroid mental distance, right? And so they actually have very, uh, I guess, the, the opposite of anterior airways, right? Very, very uh, posterior, very easy to, to visualize airways. Whereas, you know, if you think about um, some patients who have really recessed micrognathia, right, a very s- short, small jaw, and you can you can picture these people with a really recessed um, lower jaw that's kind of right above their cri- their thyroid cartilage, that those patients, you know, as as you tilt their head back, their airway is going to be very anterior and very hard to get to. Are you ever reviewing, um, or asking them, or looking through charts their previous history of anesthesia and airways? Um, I feel like this is something that we do inpatient sometimes. Like, who was the last guy who tried to innovate this person, and how did that go? Hundred percent. I would say. We should always do that if we have time. Sometimes if it's an emergency situation on the floor or something like that, maybe we don't have time. You know, we have to put an airway, try try the airway because the patient is actively dying. But anytime we have time, we should be looking at the history of intubations. Now, you have to know the history. You want to know who did it. So, for example, if I see that it took three tries, but the first three, the first two tries were done by the you know third-year med student, then that's not predictive necessarily. That's going to be hard this time. And that's why it's really important to document this well. And I would highly, we do this well in the OR, but I think a lot of times on the floor and in the ICUs, it's not documented as well. So I would highly encourage people take time afterwards to really say exactly, you know, what did you use? What blade did you use? Did you have adjuncts like an oral airway, a nasal airway for your for your masking? Did you use, uh, did it take multiple attempts? If so, why, right? So I will say in there, you know, first attempt by, you know, med student unsuccessful, second attempt by, you know, new CA1 resident unsuccessful, third attempt by me, you know, easy intubation with a, you know, grade one view. So that's helpful to know. So, but knowing the the history is really important and then knowing what may have happened since then. So if I know that last week, this patient before their, you know, first stage of this spine procedure was an easy intubation with a MAC3 blade and by a resident, then chances are overwhelming, unless it was a neck neck spine surgery, but if it was, let's say, a lumbar spine surgery, that they're going to be equally easy now. If I know that five years ago they were grade one view, but in the meantime they had their C-spine fused, that may not be helpful at all to know. But So we want to know how easy or not were they to mask and to intubate the last time, if there is a last time, and what, if anything, has happened in the meantime that may change that. So a history of some sort of difficulty, especially by a a competent uh, operator is suggestive of some perhaps difficulty for you uh, and also maybe suggestive of what approaches may be difficult. So maybe you don't want to do it the way they had trouble with. (laughs) Absolutely. And in fact, I would say that, you know, this is a really important point that if you do an awake intubation in someone and that's in the chart, if all I know is that they were an awake intubation last time, that basically guarantees them an awake intubation the next time. One thing we will sometimes do is try to dig into that a little bit. And even if we can, if it was done here, try to talk to the people and figure out exactly what happened. Because it, we'd like, if possible, to get that person off the hook for always having to have an awake intubation. But if we can't be sure, then that's once done, it's going to always be because we're going to assume that it, they needed it, right? If, they, if we don't know any other information, we're going to assume that they couldn't be done asleep. And so that, you know, we really do need to know what was done last time. Right. Or some people will only use a bougie for a really difficult airway. Or some people kind of believe it's common in the uh, emergency world that it's just a good idea and you should just use them. And those are very different things as far as the signal. 
and I will just say with that, I have to say that that is a very emergency medicine thing. I don't really understand it. Um, maybe it makes sense with people who don't. But I will say that, you know, having done thousands of intubations with and without a bougie, that a bougie is a nice tool for when you need it. But it definitely can happen that you can get a bougie in and then not be able to pass the tube over the bougie into the airway, whereas you may have been able to put that tube in without the bougie. And so, you know, in my world, if you can get the, if you, if you do a DL and you see the wide open cords, I would not opt to first put a bougie in there, both because bougies can cause damage and because it's possible you'd have the bougie in and not be able to pass the tube. Why not just put the tube straight in? So I, I think it's nice to have a bougie as a, adjunct, but I would not personally, uh, and we do not teach to always do a bougie first. Now we talked about, um, medical history involving anatomic alterations of the, the head or face or neck, including things like radiation, not to be forgotten. Are there any other aspects of the medical history that might contribute to a more difficult airway? So there are some, you know, less common things. So rheumatoid arthritis, um, Down syndrome, these are things where patients can have some atlanto-occipital um, instability. So you want to be very careful. I guess that's less about whether it'd be a difficult intubation and more about you might cause damage um, by doing the intubation. Certainly a history of trauma. If patients say, you know, yeah, when I, when I put my neck back, I get, you know, weakness in my arms, things like that might make us say, all right, let's try to do this with minimal neck extension. So maybe, for example, we'll use a, an asleep fiber or a video laryngoscopy instead of a regular uh, DL um, so that we can try to minimize neck extension. Um, so those are, are definitely things we'll take into account. Um, other than that, I think, you know, again, airway, radiation, surgery, um, any uh, history of, you know, same with the jaw, right? Jaw or face, anything that you could imagine just anatomically might affect it uh, is something we're going to look at. And, you know, the, the dentition thing, of course, do they have teeth? Do they not? It's, can easily be missed in the more emergent setting. Um, do they have dentures? If, you know, are we going to take them out? And, of course, the presence of more spotty you know, d tooth loss, right? Like a dental gap in the front is an easy thing to that can really bind you up. I, maybe I find a little less in the era of, of VL, but um, right. good things. And then the that. other thing I would say in terms of medical history is it's not just about will the intubation mechanics be difficult, but how long will we have uh, with before they desaturate? And so that's going to involve things like obesity will make it, you know, they'll desaturate faster. Same with pregnancy. Um significant lung disease, COPD, uh, et cetera. So these are patients who, uh, infants, right? So the, the babies are the same way where they are going to, you're going to preoxygenate as much as you can, but you may only have a few seconds to a minute before they desaturate. Whereas a healthy adult who is not obese, who you preoxygenate adequately, you could have five, six, seven minutes before they desaturate. So that makes a huge difference. And it's important to know that going in. Right. And, you know, physiological challenges to innovation is a whole other matter. And I, I think one that we're a little more comfortable with evaluating in the ICU, although certainly important as well. Um, you mentioned the stop-bang score. Is that something you think has any relevance for uh, those of us doing less kind of elective airways? I don't think it's relevant to intubation. It's relevant for, I, I should, let me back that off. I'll say patients who are at risk for OSA are also probably at risk for desaturating faster. So it is one thing that probably helps you there. But mostly this is a score to predict whether someone is going to need airway uh, oxygen monitoring postoperatively because they're going to be at risk for obstruction postoperatively. So it probably does have some influence on how likely they are to desaturate quickly and maybe even their, their likelihood of easy mask ventilation because if they're going to obstruct post-op, they may have excess soft tissue in the airway. For example, the neck circumference we talked about is part of the stop-bang score. 
And so those things uh, will probably uh, contribute both to a difficult mask ventilation and to a risk of, of OSA. But I would say it's probably less, it certainly wasn't designed to be a predictor of mask ventilation or intubation difficulty. Okay. And we talked about masking, we talked about intubation. Um, when you do get into a more difficult airway, a lot of these algorithms will end up with some kind of rescue device like an LMA or even um, cricothyrotomy. Are these things that also may have factors creating a, a you know challenges, and are you assessing those as well routinely? Yeah, so I think if you're if someone is has no predictors for difficult mask or difficult intubation, you probably don't need to go a whole lot farther and figure out would they be a difficult crike, right? But I would say that if you are at all concerned, then you definitely need to ask that. Um, and these days, it is pretty rare to need to do a cricothyronomy, though not impossible. But you know, certainly with the advent of uh, ubiquitous video laryngoscopy, fiber optic bronchoscopy, um, and that that it makes it really um, likely that you can get an airway in uh, LMAs, uh, certainly for ventilation. So it's less common than it once was. But that said, if you have a patient who looks like they might be difficult, and you're going to proceed, you need to ask yourself, what if we can't? What if it's not successful? Um, I mean, you should always have that in mind because, as I said, even a, someone who seems easy might be difficult, but probably is unlikely. But you still need to always have at least a backup. So, for example, I will I, no one should ever do an intubation unless it's absolutely emergent, you don't have time, without backup devices available, at least an LMA for sure. So if you, for example, have a large neck mass, let's say someone has a big goiter, okay, well, that patient can't be criked, right? So that takes that out. Um, and so you need to really think, all right, before I induce this patient with uh, who cannot get a surgical airway, am I really confident I can do this? That If you're not really confident, that's a patient who probably needs an awake intubation because at least then you haven't burned any bridges. And LMAs, are there things that might make you unable to place one? You know, LMAs are incredibly versatile. You do need a certain amount of mouth opening. So if a patient, I mean, the extreme would be if a patient, you know, mouth is wired closed, you cannot do an LMA, right? You, if you have to do a nasal intubation there. Um, I think you need about two inches of mouth opening. So if you have less than that, you might not be able to place an LMA. Um, even with that, though, you may be able to squeeze it in. It's probably going to be more difficult. The same things that cause difficult intubation in terms of manipulation or altered anatomy of the oropharynx and larynx, that is also going to make an LMA difficult to use. So if the larynx is displaced, you can put an LMA in. It may not be above the larynx, and therefore you may not be able to ventilate through the larynx using it. So... Um, I would be very cautious with any altered airway anatomy you, with a with being confident about LMA usage. What do you think about, you know, I think a lot of folks who maybe intubate, but their kind of pre-intubation evaluation is very limited. A lot of the time, it seems like it's one thing. Um, is this patient particularly obese? Do you think that has good predictive value for a difficult airway, either sensitive or specific? No, I don't think that obesity is a predictor of difficult uh, intubation. Um, certainly not a predictor of easy either. I, I don't think it's very useful for that. It is, uh, as we've talked about, obese patients will desaturate faster. So you will have less time. But uh, in terms of being able to ventilate with an LMA or place an endotracheal tube, that has not been definitively shown that p obese patients are more difficult. That said, right, you are going to have less time. So it's important to keep that in mind. And then obesity usually will correlate with a more difficult mask ventilation. Some of that depends. It, it Probably if you had a patient who all their obesity was in their abdomen and not in their neck and, and oropharynx at all, then it may not. But most patients are going to have more soft tissue in the oropharynx if they're really obese. So mm -hmm. that uh, may make it more difficult to mask, but not to place an airway in and of itself. 
All right, so let's change gears here. You see this patient, they go off. Um, you change uh, your schedule. Now you're covering the ICU. And now you find that you, um, let's say that you are actually, uh, you are called to the room of a patient you don't know. Maybe this is because uh, you are, you know, covering airways for the anesthesia department, something like that. Maybe you're just kind of cross-covering something. But you get called over because someone says, this patient's in respiratory failure. They need to be intubated. And all you know is that it, this is, again, surprisingly, a 55-year-old male who has diabetes and hypertension. Um, and that's about it. Now, you can dig into whatever it is you can find from the chart. Um, but you just see a patient who's, let's say, wearing a BiPAP mask on 100% oxygen, satting 88% and, and looks labored. Presumably, you can't get into all of the same things to evaluate this patient in this setting. Um, so what is your approach here? Yeah, it's a great question, and this happens all the time. And so... The first thing, honestly, that you may not think of but that I want to know is, is this patient full code? Because before we go down any route of getting ready to intubate them, if they don't want to be intubated, then we don't need to go down that route. So we want to make sure we know that. And you'd be surprised at how many times the answer is, oh, I don't know. Let me check, right? I mean, they hadn't, when they called us to come intubate, but they, they hadn't checked to see that. So fine, I don't mind, but I want to check now. I think it's important to divide and conquer here. So we will certainly start setting up our intubation medications and intubation devices. But at the same time, I'm going to ask someone, maybe the medicine resident or whoever it is in the room, if they can go back in the chart and try to find if this patient's been intubated here before or in anywhere we have access to records. So we already talked about why that's important. Um, I'm going to either myself or, you know, ask one of my trainees, whoever's with me, to start taking a look at the patient as you, if the way you've laid this out, right, BiPAP, we're not gonna take the BiPAP mask off to evaluate the Malampati score or anything like that, but we can still see a lot, right? We can see, are they obese? We can see, do they, what's their, how, do they, what's their neck circumference look like? We can probably get a little bit of a feel for just, you know, do they look like they have a recessed chin or does it look normal? Um, you know, does it, do they have a, a nice broad jaw? You can get a little bit of a feel for that. Um, you can, depending on how they're sitting in bed, you may be able to get a feel for their neck extension, right? They may be sitting there with their neck already really extended, or they may be hunched up, you know, and you, and you can't. And then depending on how responsive the patient is, you can certainly ask them, right? Without taking that BiPAP mask off, can you extend your neck? Um, you know, can you just move your jaw back and forth a little bit? So you can get a feel for that. I also want to know important medical history. I want to know labs. I want to know, you know, when I'm deciding what to use for intubation, I need to know what the potassium is. I need to know when they last ate. Um, I want to know what their... Uh, hemoglobin and platelets are, right? Again, if their platelets are three, then they're going to be really likely to bleed when we intubate them. Um, and I want to know if they're, what their hemodynamics have been. So if they're on, you know, a, a huge dose of norepinephrine right now, that's significant. And then important medical history, right? Do they have heart failure? Do they have pulmonary hypertension? Do they have aortic stenosis? Are there major cardiopulmonary things that are going to influence how this goes? So all of that, we're kind of gathering all that information at once. And then you have to make a decision. Is this a patient who on that 100% BiPAP maxed out settings is sitting there 88, 87, 86, 85, and, you know, we don't have time. I mean, we've got to just go because before you know it, they're going to code. Or is this a patient who's been at 88 for the past couple of hours? They were hope the team was hoping they would improve. They didn't, so they're calling us because they can't keep up this BiPAP forever, but we've got time because they're sitting there at 88, and the 88 is okay for the moment. Um, so that's important to know, too. In the setting of they're heading down to zero, then, you know, we're going to make sure they, they want to be intubated, and if they do, then we're going to probably have to just go ahead. The problem is we can't pre-oxygenate someone who is on 100%, uh, you know, BiPAP, 
any better than they've already been. So what we're going to have to do is this is the scenario where you don't have the med student try, right? This is where you're going to get one try. It's probably going to be need to be done in about 15 seconds. And the risk of them, you know, desaturating enough where they start to get bradycardic and, and maybe go into cardiac arrest is, is pretty high. So you have to be very fast. And so you're going to do that. Now, if they're at 88, 89, 90, they're kind of up and down. Um, interestingly, you can only get so much force through a BiPAP, right? So we, I've had it where I'll, I'll have this situation and then we will take the BiPAP off, put on our, our, um, a bag valve mask and apply significant amounts of PEEP through that more probably than the BiPAP was able to do and really try to recruit. And I've been able to get patients who were on hundred percent BiPAP, you know, at 88%, I've been able to get them up to the mid nineties or even higher with our efforts. So if we can do that, that's great. That's going to buy us more time. If not, uh, and that the only option is to, to try to do the intubation, then we're going to try to do it, but we're going to try to maximize our setup. We're going to maximize our position. We're going to have our most experienced provider do it. And we're going to do the best we can for that patient. Okay. So, you know, a lot of this depends on the situation, how much time you have, but of course, you know, realistically, most of our ICU intubations are not absolute crash innovations, you have minutes or even hours. So you have some kind of preparation, but the kind of highest yield things it sounds like are, I mean, you could always look at the head, face and neck, get an idea for the anatomy. You could see where their chin is. You can usually get them to open their mouth, at least to some extent, and just see what you got teeth wise, tongue wise. Maybe you can't get a great malum potty per se, depending on how cooperative they are and if they have a mask on or whatever, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like most people have a so-so malampati in that setting, but you could sort of see something. Um, and then it, even if they can't actively flex and extend their neck, perhaps you can do it for them, right? And just see if it's mobile. Yep, absolutely. And the other thing is, this is a patient, even if they're not the crashing one, even if they're just like stably unstable, this is a patient where, you know, you're going to use, you're going to go right to video laryngoscopy. So, you know, even, even for expert anesthesia providers, it's, I would be, I would love to hear from someone who disagrees with this, but video laryngoscopy is on average easier. It's never harder unless the mouth is full of blood and you can't see anything on the video. But even then, I'm not sure you're any worse off. You can use it as essentially a DL. But, uh, you know, you're, you're going to go, you need to go as fast as you can. So you're going to use a video. And certainly for me, if I have a trainee doing it, I am going to be, I, I want to be able to see, right? Because we don't have time for them to accidentally put it in the esophagus, then figure that out, then pull it out, then try again. So I need to be able to see so I know it went where it's supposed to go. Okay. What about, um, you know, many of your elective OR patients are fasted. They've been NPO for some time. Uh, ICU patients are on the floor or something, may or may not have been. Uh, is that useful information to you? And if, if not, would it modify your approach? Yeah, so that's an important point. If a patient is truly... NPO, so they've been NPO for more than eight hours. They have had no solid food, no fat. They can have some clear liquids, but no nothing more solid than that for eight hours. Then we feel like it's reasonable to say, at least in an elective patient walking in, that their stomach is empty. In a patient in the ICU who's critically ill, septic, I, we can't say that with any authority. I, I would treat essentially any ICU patient uh, unless they have had literally nothing for days. But even if they're just getting tube feeds, uh, you know, I would assume this patient could have particulate matter in their stomach. There's it just the stomach emptying is so impaired in patients who are septic and and critically ill that I don't think you can assume that. It would be helpful to know if they had been, you know, if it was a patient who just got 
breakfast that morning and it's two hours later and then they've crashed, that's important to know because now we know they've got, right? That's a certainty. Either way, we're basically always doing a rapid sequence intubation for patients in the ICU because we are just assuming they are at high risk for aspiration. And so it is important to know that we're going to prepare for that. Now, one really important thing is take a look at the prevent trial, a New England Journal from, I think, about 2018. And they took patients in the ICU having intubations, and they randomized them to getting mask ventilation during the apneic period or not. Now, traditionally, as you know, RSI, rapid sequence intubation, is taught you do not mask ventilate. So you give your induction drugs, you wait, you know, if, assuming if it's succinylcholine, you wait, you know, 45 seconds to a minute, and then you intubate. It turns out that in this trial, what we saw is that patients who got some mask ventilation breaths had less hypoxia and did not have an increased rate of aspiration. So it was safe to do, and you prevented some hypoxemia by giving some mask ventilation. So my practice now is always to give breaths during uh, the, the apneic period of rapid sequence intubation. But you're always going to be doing it under those rapidly as rapidly as possible. You you just they're high risk enough in the ICU. So I guess knowing that they were NPO or not is less helpful in the ICU than it is in an elective OR case. Though knowing they definitely got fed would just make me even more concerned for possible aspiration. So maybe you would try to uh, mass ventilate them less <laughs> in a patient who had a more full stomach. Well, I think I probably still would. Ma- I would do it. I would just be ready. I mean, you know, I guess you're always going to be ready, but I would just assume this is a higher risk patient. But as I said, an ICU patient is always going to be higher risk than a non-critically ill patient. Right. Yeah. So let's look at some of those things. So what are kind of the the standard things you might do that are different in this setting compared to the more elective patient. You said oftentimes you you might mask ventilate them. Um, You said you would advocate for essentially always using video. Yeah. I mean, again, there are times where we have a patient who is getting electively intubated in the ICU. Let's say they have a procedure they're going for an IR procedure and they've asked us, hey, if you don't mind intubating them, it would just make our lives easier. So it's a patient who's stable and, you know, maybe they've just got a an ongoing GI bleed, but they're stable at the moment, but they have to go down to IR, right? But they're, you know, that patient is very different than your, sep- you know, septic shock patient. So, but let's, those are less common. So let's take your, your kind of critically ill patient in the ICU who needs to be intubated for respiratory failure or for hemodynamic instability, uh, you know, mental status leading to inability to protect the airway. So in those patients, we are going to assume that they are, first of all, going to be more hemodynamically unstable. So whereas most patients coming in for elective surgery, you may think, all right, they're going to drop, everyone's going to drop their pressure with induction, a little less depending on what you're using. But these are patients in the ICU who were not going to give 200 milligrams of propofol, right? Whereas that's very common in an elective surgery in the OR. So we're using different agents. As I said, we're almost always doing it as a rapid sequence intubation. So we're either going to give succinylcholine or high dose rocuronium. One really important point is that if you as the intubator are using high dose rocuronium, You need to make sure that the ICU team taking care of this patient knows that they are going to be paralyzed for an hour or more afterwards, and they cannot be just put on a low-dose fentanyl drip. They have to be on an amnestic. That's either propofol or a benzodiazepine, uh, or or otherwise they'll be aware, potentially aware and and paralyzed. So not all ICUs know that. They don't all, you know, um, aren't all used to this, and so they may and we've had it happen where we've seen it happen where people may be put on an inadequate and uh, amount of anesthesia afterwards or at least of an um, amnestic afterwards. 
So that's really important. So we're going to be doing a rapid sequence intubation. We're going to be thinking about hemodynamic instability. Usually, I will want these patients on a norepinephrine infusion for intubation, as well as having some norepinephrine or epinephrine ready to push with the induction drugs. We're not going to use big doses of propofol. You can intubate with propofol, but if you're going to do that, you're going to do small intermittent doses, and you're going to intersperse it with some push-dose pressors. More commonly, if they're not septic, Atomidate's a great option. I try to stay away from Atomidate and septic patients, but certainly ketamine is another great option, and so we'll often use that as well. Uh, some intubators, and it, to generalize, maybe this is more common among those who might not be quite as comfortable with the procedure, we'll say things like, I'm going to not paralyze this person. Um, that way, if there's a problem, they can wake up and they can breathe. Um, how do you feel about that in this higher risk population? Yeah, so the only way that works is if you're going to do an awake intubation. If you, if you do an awake intubation, which is a very important, I think, skill to, to have, uh, if you are going to do it, then you're absolutely right. An awake intubation, you can abort at any time as long as you don't, you know, remember, in awake intubation, you should not use enough sedation that they then uh, stop breathing or else it's no longer an awake intubation, okay? But assuming you've done it right, then you are safe. You can stop it. They will still be awake. They can still breathe. Um, arguably, if you use just ketamine, uh, the same situation can can be present where you can, patients should still breathe with ketamine. And so you can uh, basically let them keep breathing and, you know, maybe put an oral airway or a nasal trumpet in or something and so they don't obstruct, but just let them um, continue breathing and stop your intubation attempts. But it is not true. So let's say you say, okay, I'm not going to paralyze. I'm just going to give my propofol. Well, it turns out that you can reverse rocuronium with Sugamidex or let succinylcholine itself wear off in more or less the same amount of time that um, the, the propofol is going to keep them apneic. So you haven't saved yourself. And what you've done is you've made it more difficult. So you've basically mm -hmm. said, I'm not going to give the rock or, or sucks. So I'm going to make it more difficult to intubate. In fact, I'm going to make it more likely that I will fail because I think somehow this is going to help me, you know, abort faster where actually it will not. So I'll just give you the numbers. If you give uh, an induction dose of rocuronium, you try to intubate, you cannot, and you say, we need to abort. And you give 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex, takes about a minute and a half to two minutes before they will be fully reversed and able to breathe on their own again, okay? So that whole process, let's say you spent two minutes trying, now you've spent two minutes reversing them, now they're back. That, if you give a big dose of propofol, they're going to be apneic for probably about three or four minutes anyway, right? So you haven't saved yourself time, but by giving the prop by, by giving the rocuronium, you have maximized your likelihood of success, both, by the way, at mask ventilation and at intubation. So yes, you if you've decided to do an asleep intubation, you do not want to hold the, the the paralytic. You want to give it. So in this higher like a high risk population is not a reason to not paralyze. It's it's really the opposite. Unless you're going to do it awake, which is kind of a specialized technique that I think most non anesthesiologists are not that comfortable with. Maybe some of the EM folks, but it's kind of one or the other. There's no middle ground where they're sleepy. But. Well, the only middle ground I would say would be a ketamine only intubation. So what you can do is give a about, you know, depends on, I, I would probably give somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 milligrams of ketamine to dissociate the patient, um, but they will still breathe. And then you can take a look, put a, try to get, uh, now there's no, they're not relaxed. So you may or may not be able to get a video laryngoscope in their mouth, but if you can, you can try to take a look. And if you get in there and you see a grade one view, then you can go ahead and push whatever you want, push your, you know, your paralytic. But if you go in there and you see nothing, um, you know, you might say, okay, uh, we're going to just abort this attempt. 
and let them keep breathing through that ketamine until they recover, or we're going to plan whatever the next plan is, right? If they need an airway, you might say, we're going to call ENT and do uh, an awake trach or whatever the plan is. But um, that is kind of the middle ground. But what you cannot do is give something that will make them apneic. So usually that would be a dose of, a reasonable dose of propofol, propofol plus fentanyl, you know, um, fentanyl and enough fentanyl and, and uh, versed, anything that's going to make them apneic, uh, atomidate, and then decide I'm not going to get paralytic and think that helps me because it does not. Let's look at one other high-risk situation. You talked about um, patients with full stomachs. What about the extremes of that? The patient with a bowel obstruction or significant upper GI bleeding, maybe they've been vomiting and now you need an airway. Maybe they're going to go get an EGD or something else. Um, I, presumably, there's at least some increased risk in these people. How is it changing your approach? Yeah, so... Always, always, if we're going to do an intubation, we want to have the following things. Suction, oxygen, and, and it's no small thing. Having a, an Ambu bag that someone tells you is hooked up to oxygen is not a substitute for you checking yourself because it has happened to me where I'm told that and I look and it may be hooked up, but the oxygen is not on or it may not even be hooked up. So verify for yourself that you are delivering oxygen through that bag. Airway equipment, including multiple backups, LMA, fiber, et cetera, all your drugs, plus your emergency drugs, and then uh, your NIV that works, very important, uh, and then monitors that are on and showing you what you want. So an easy example is, you know, a patient doesn't have an A-line, they've got a cuff, and that cuff is set to cycle every 15 minutes. Well, that is not going to help you during your intubation, right? So you need to make sure that's cycling every minute or two. So you have to have all that set up. In a patient like you described who is high, high risk, they're already as vomiting, right? Uh, this patient, I, uh, suction becomes much more important. So I, don't, I need more than one suction catheter. I need to be thinking, is this a patient who a Yankauer is not going to work? Because a Yankauer is a pretty terrible suction device uh, for you know anything large particulate. Is this a patient who I may actually start by sticking an endotracheal tube in the esophagus and hooking a, a, the suction up to that? And then I can do a second attempt to try to see the airway, knowing now I have an outlet for that vomit or blood if it's coming from the GI tract. Um, so that can be helpful. Now, the other thing that happens is sometimes it surprises you. So you, de you, you go in with your laryngoscope, and all of a sudden blood starts pouring out. If you know this is a patient likely bleeding from the GI tract as opposed to their lungs, then the first thing you can do is go ahead and stick that tube you've got in your hands in the esophagus and hope to deflect that blood out another direction so you can actually see what you're doing. So being ready for that kind of technique is really important in a patient who uh, you think is going to have stuff coming from the GI tract, whether that's gastric contents or blood, so that you can still do it. And then be ready. If your hope was to use video, get that. if that camera gets covered in blood, it's not going to help you anymore. So you need to be ready for that possibility and then think, what am I going to do if that happens? Am I going to just go with a regular DL? Am I going to use an LMA? Um, so having that, that plan in place. But the biggest thing is probably suction and then keeping the patient more upright. So those patients, we're not going to lay them flat. We're going to intubate them sitting up at least, you know, something like 30 degrees. Um, and be ready for that to, you know, again, if they vomit in that position, now we're going to flip it, right? So if we intubate, if we induce them and they're at, they're sitting up and now, and they start to vomit anyway, now we want to flip it because now they're more likely to, for it to go down and we want it to come up. So now we're going to lay them down and put them in Trendelenburg so that that vomit hopefully gets out of them and not back in and suction it as best we can. But at least to try the intubation, if we can keep them upright, that's likely to prevent some of that vomiting from coming up. Are you ever a believer in snaking down something like an NG tube ahead of time to decompress the stomach? So the problem with that is that 
it can induce vomiting, right? So I think you, you have to be right now. If the patient's completely awake, then that's okay. Because if they vomit and they can protect their airway, then it, they, they're unlikely to aspirate it, right? Just like you and I, if we get sick and we vomit, we don't aspirate. It doesn't get into our lungs. So if a patient is awake and with it and able to protect their airway, then it's not the worst idea. I probably would do NG as opposed to OG because it's less likely to make them vomit. But if you can do that, if they already have one, that's great. If not, then certainly trying to get an NG in those patients um, would be great. That would be helpful. It does not guarantee you'll have an empty stomach, but it's probably helpful. Um, but I think you need to be ready anyway because that NG tube is probably not going to empty the stomach completely. And certainly just as you're placing it, it's possible they're going to start vomiting. Brian, what else do you want to explore? I think we've had a really good discussion. I, I do like that what you said about documentation of the difficult airway. And I think it's important to, for people to understand that that those words have meaning. And I, you know, I've seen this multiple times in the past where someone has marked difficult airway because a second year IM resident had difficulty and he goes, well, it was difficult, right? Um, and then that follows them for the rest of their lives. You know, I'll, I'll have patients that three admissions ago, they were marked as a difficult airway uh, who really aren't. But um, I also think, you know, what you said about backup plans, I see this a lot too with less experienced um, intubators is, you know, your backup plan should not be, it's going to work, <laughs> you know? Um, and I almost wonder too, because uh, I've had this situation come up, if DL as a backup plan, as a rescue plan, isn't a good idea with the GlideScope. Um, because I've had the GlideScope fail mid-intubation before. Um, and this is the thing that I, I worry with the the sort of push for new learners to learn video laryngoscopy exclusively because it's safer, which I agree with you. Like you said, I don't think you're ever unless it fails, worse off with video. But I mean, I have had, I've had, I have had a GlideScope fail mid intubation. And if you aren't comfortable DL, I mean, you can even deal with the GlideScope handle, but so I think that's a good skill to have as well. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I have also had GlideScopes and CMAX and other video laryngoscopes fail. Uh, in other words, just die mid, mid intubation attempt. So, I think where, what I love to do with learners is I will get a, um, a video laryngoscope like a C-Mac that has a, a, just a Mac 3 or a Mac 4 blade, so not a hyperangulated blade, and I will turn the screen away from them so they can't see it. And then for, for all intents and purposes, they have a regular old Mac 3 blade, just a regular blade, they, and all they can do with that is a regular DL. But I can look at the screen and I can see what they are seeing. Now, it's not perfect because my view is going to be a little better than theirs, but it can give me some idea. So I can tell, are they like, you know, completely off way over in the left corner of the mouth or are they close? You know, if they say I'm seeing something and I go, oh, that's the epiglottis, right? So that's a great teaching technique. And then if needed, if they can't do it, then I can show them the screen and say, okay, see where you are. Now I want you to do this. And that that is a really good way to teach. I would definitely not advocate teaching learners right off the bat by giving them a hyperangulated GlideScope or CMAC or, or anything hyperangulated, because that is not an accurate view of what you're going to see when you DL. And like you said, 
you may be in a situation, even if your plan is to always VL, that you might have your video die and now you have to be able to DL. So I think that's, I disagree with people who say, should we even be teaching DL anymore? I think we must teach DL, but you can teach it with a video scope. Assuming you have regular geometry blades for your video scope, which is sort of uh, a lot of places they just have gone hyperangulated and it really kind of uh, that's right. pushes you into that niche of doing video only, which it's kind of, it seems like such a simple matter, but. Yeah, that I think is unfortunate. Um, if it's all you have, it's all you have. If my, in that scenario, what I would do, I think, is I would have the GlideScope there as backup, but I would have them try with just a DL, assuming you have a, a regular blade. The problem with that is it's very hard to see. Even if you go behind someone's shoulder and you try to look and see what they're seeing, it's very hard to see what they're seeing. And so you really have to take the blade from them and put your own head there, and now you've taken it over. So it's not ideal. All right. What else do you want to say about this topic? What do you want to leave us with for all of the non-anesthesiologists out there doing horrifying things to your airways? Yeah, I would say, you know, respect the airway. Uh, it is, you can get lulled into, you can have, you know, 10 easy intubations in a row, get lulled into thinking, well, you know, it's fine. I don't really need to have the LMA in the room. You know, it's probably there somewhere. I can call for it, right? You can think, um, uh, yeah, I haven't needed suction. I, I'm not going to chat. I'm not going to have the nurses set up the suction. I'm going to wait 10 minutes while they go find the suction tubing. Yeah, and I'm telling you, that is a mistake. You, We talk about anesthesiology as being a lot of preparation. You have to think what could go wrong and you have to prepare for it. And I think that isn't just true of anesthesiology. It needs to be true of any procedure. I don't know. We didn't really talk about optimizing positioning, but that's another thing. Really, really important. We have the luxury in the OR of kind of getting any position we want. It's a lot harder in the ICU. They're in this bed. It's kind of squishy. You don't have optimal positioning. They've got this backboard on. It's jammed up against the wall. Really obese patients. We ramp, right? So what you want is for the external auditory meatus, essentially where their ear is, to be on a level plane with their sternal notch. If you think about a really obese patient, their sternal notch is going to be a foot above, right? If they're just laying down, a foot above where their ear is. So you need to ramp them. You need to put more and more from their lower back up to their head, towels or pillows. So, pillows are not great. Really should be towels so that their head and, and upper back and neck are elevated so that you get that lined up. That's going to really improve your chances at intubation success. And it is worth taking the time to get that patient optimally positioned. Make sure they're straight. Make sure that you have room behind the bed, that you've got the backboard off. Make sure that the uh, all your equipment is ready, that you're, as we already talked about, the monitors being set up and the monitors that you need. Again, I would say if you have a patient who isn't on a presser yet, but they're, you know, a little borderline hypotensive, you do not want to give them a big slug of intubation meds and then call for, you know, a presser. You need to have that ready or started. I will often ask teams to go ahead and start the norepinephrine drip, even if they weren't on one. Uh, I'd rather have it on and then let them turn it off afterwards. So preparation is so, so key. And just remember, I know we've talked about it, that you haven't burned a bridge until you take away a patient's ability to breathe. So take the time, think about it, prepare. You know, again, just because maybe you may not be comfortable with awake intubation, may not, that doesn't mean this patient may not need an awake intubation, and you probably could find someone, maybe not, but you might be able to find someone in the, certainly an anesthesiologist or possibly an ED doc in the hospital who would be comfortable helping you with that. If you decide to intubate, be ready, have backup plans. LMAs are amazing devices. Always, always have an LMA available. And 
Um, you know, the other thing is we are very lucky here, and I know not everyone has this, but we have a difficult airway response team. We call it the DART, difficult airway response team. And so if I'm looking at a patient in the ICU and I, and I let, you know, it could be anything, but let's say they're, you know, have a huge neck mass, they are morbidly obese, they're already on 100%, you know, oxygen, and uh, they have, you know, a, a micronathia and, a, and they can't extend their neck. I am calling, I want that DART team there before I start. Maybe I don't need it, right? And that what that brings me is an ENT uh, doctor, a trauma surgeon, uh, an, an anesthesiologist, uh, you know, comes, although that would be me, um, and um, RT and a variety of other things. And so now we can sit and make a plan, right? So let's say I try this and I can't get it. All right, I've got a surgeon here who you know, now we have to talk about, they have this neck mask, can they do a surgical airway, right? And so we need to think about that. But at least we have all the resources available and at the bedside. And I'm not saying you need to always have the DART team there for every intubation. But if you think it's going to be difficult, have all the support you can get. If you don't have a DART team, can you call anesthesia, even if you're going to do it, right? I think it's totally reasonable to say, if you're not an anesthesiologist and you have one there to say, listen, would you mind being here? I'd like to try this, but I'd like you here, uh, just in case it's more difficult than I thought. So have your resources available. It's really scary when you take away a patient's ability to breathe and you cannot breathe for them. That cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situation is one of the scariest things we see in medicine, period. And I hope that none of you find yourself in it. But if you do, you want to know what your next steps are. Yeah, I like what you said about being lulled into complacency. I, I mean, Brian and I have talked, and I think we're advocates for the idea that non-anesthesiologists can and, and perhaps should uh, be managing airways to some extent, but that that is not the same as uh, as saying that you can take it lightly. It's um, There's no room for ego here. It is absolutely the kind of thing that there's such a fine line between a boring innovation and a, and a catastrophe. And the fact that you've done five or 10 or, or 50 of these and it was boring doesn't mean the that you're any good at it and the next one is not going to be a disaster. It's like a roller coaster ride or, a, you know, a a commercial uh, airline flight or something. There's just not a lot of room between boring and a catastrophe. You don't want a, a, like a little bit exciting airline flight here, um, and it's kind of hard to appreciate that unless maybe you've seen some disasters. But you need you need a, as much buffer as possible. So the things we've talked about today about being able to recognize when there's you know more risk here and calling upon whatever resources you have, especially if you expect them to be something that'll take time to mobilize, for instance. You don't want to be neck deep into something and then you're trying to call in some help from home or something like that. So I think we can leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope everyone, um, if you haven't, go check out Jed's podcast, ACRAC, um, A-C-C-R-A-C. Uh, you could just Google, I think. It's um, not all directly relevant to kind of pure critical care people, but we talked about before, I think a lot of value in in learning things that are not right in our wheelhouse because a lot of that stuff you probably know already. Um, it's just a lot of good content. So we'll leave you guys there. Uh, just a reminder, this is all just general educational content. It is not meant to be any specific medical advice, and I, I hope you're not basing any of your medical care on this podcast alone. And we're not representing any of our own institutions. It's just our own opinions. And we'll talk to you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>